0: You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts,
1: literally, to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer.
0: Now, here's your host, Mick Garris.
1: I'm Mick Garris, and this is Live Postmortem at the online Fantasia Film Festival, one of the greatest genre festivals in the world and I'm so happy to be talking to my friend Mike Flanagan about creating film from books and from original screenplays and that whole process. No one is better qualified as a man who's adapted Stephen King, Shirley Jackson, and now Henry James as well. So uh, let's just start in with how the process works for you, the difference between sitting down with a book and turning that to the page and then the screen, And the original idea concept. Why don't we start with the adaptation issue first?
0: Certainly. Um, and look, I'm so happy to be having this conversation with you, Mick, you know, because you yourself have been through this so many times and and are so familiar as well with the pitfalls and the landmines and the challenges of it. You know, I I think I think from my perspective, I I very much like you as well. You know, I'm a constant reader. I grew up not only with Stephen King, but just reading in general was a huge part of of my formative years and, and of my life and Before I really fell in love with cinema, I had already fallen in love with storytelling just in the the movies that kind of are created in your imagination when you read a wonderful book and um, I never really really thought much about what it would take to translate a story like that um, until I was I was much older but I did always feel growing up that when I would read a wonderful book, um, I would get lost in it to the point where I would see things, you know, I, I would imagine things. Um, I, I would have a, a really kind of contained emotional experience reading a great book. And so when, when I started being able to, to make films for a living, and the, the first time I actually was, you know, able to adapt something, um, uh, which was Gerald's Game, uh the, the process that I went through was very much about how to try to take that visual experience that I'd had reading the book and distill it into something that would be understandable and cinematic and executable, which is, you know, a whole other, a whole other facet of this. Um, but the, the priority for me is always about trying to answer that impossible question of what do you keep, what do you lose, and what do you change? Um, it's kind of that that trifecta of stress that you hit kind of scene by scene by scene by scene.
1: Well, in that um, one in particular, um, so much of it is internal. And, you know, most of Stephen King's books are highly cinematic. They're very external as well as internal. This is a movie that virtually all of it takes place in a bed, in a bedroom, in a cabin in the woods. So to... Take something that is innately literary and turn it into something cinematic. What were the particular challenges and choices that you found you had to make?
0: Well, in that particular story, I mean, as you said, so much of it is just left inside the imagination of the protagonist, you know, Um, where if you really imagine a a straight adaptation of that, it would have been uh, hours and hours of footage of Carla Gugino just thinking, Um, just kind of sitting there silently and every now and then she would throw a word or two out there to kind of, uh, to signpost where she was in the process. But the whole movie would just be something she experienced and an audience never could. Um, so, you know, the, the challenge with that one was how do you, how do you take the amazing words, um, and ideas off the page that are taking place in Jesse's imagination and let the audience experience them somehow? And uh, how, do you kind of, how do you take King's words and, um, and his prose and his descriptions and turn them into dialogue, which is really the only way you're ever going to be able to, to put them in the ear of a viewer. Um, and so kind of case by case, the, the big change for Gerald's game was just specific to creating avatars for all of those ideas. Um, and in the book, you know, there are all these other characters that she's imagining, these other voices in her head that she describes. And, one's her college roommate and one's this kind of puritanical good wife character. And then there's this UFO voice she talks about that is never really given a, a a face. That's just this kind of alien voice that kind of gets into her head. And, and all of that um, from the adaptation perspective was like, okay, how do we, how do we protect all of that, but give it a face and a presence that we can recognize and anchor ourselves with. And because the movie was about, Jesse and Gerald. It just seemed like if I keep Jesse and Gerald on screen, even you know with Gerald dead, if if those were the voices that and the faces that she would experience while she went through that, that way I could just take chunks of uh, of material right off the page and and put it in their mouths. Um, and One that of the
1: yeah, one of the most profound and, and obvious things anybody ever said to me that inspired me a lot was Richard Matheson once said to me that fiction is internal and film is external. And it's obvious, but there's got to be a way to make, to externalize the internal. And that's the job of a screenwriter, particularly when you're working from a book. Uh, it's it's so difficult. And in your process, do you have the book in front of you as you're typing and turning page by page?
0: Because oh yeah, I do. I do that. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yep. Yeah. And you, uh, I mean, I'll I'll annotate it. I'll I'll use just packets of uh, post-it notes usually because sometimes I don't want to write on the book itself. Yeah. And uh, and so my my copy, my work copy of the book, by the end just looks destroyed. It's just this battleground. Um, but I, I do, I, I go page by page, and I, I'll indicate and highlight, you know, particular lines or just a, a couple of words here and there that I really want to make sure make it in. Um, and then other times, I'll just kind of bracket something off and say, I don't know how to get this idea uh, out there visually, so I need to try to find a new way to find it. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll basically kind of go page by page on the book, and then that'll turn into this sprawling outline. Um, and I'll start moving the stickies around and start having to sacrifice some. And, and every time I've tried it, the the first draft is inevitably way too long. <laughs> yes. um, it's just just way too much stuff, and it, it becomes this really sad experience of having to kind of let things go and, and say, "Well, that'll always that'll always still be here in the book." Uh, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. King
1: makes King makes the great point when people say, "What did you think of them fucking up your book?" It's nobody fucked up my book. It's on the shelf and it's fine. And it's in good health. The movie may not be a great movie or adaptation, but it is. Well, and in the King adaptation world in specific, I mean, most recently with Dr. Sleep, you had a very unusual task at hand because it was very well known that King was not a fan of the Kubrick film. But you had this balancing act of working from not only his book, Dr. Sleep, the memories of the original book of The Shining, and then the Kubrick film uh, is so iconic that the general audience, that's what they're going to be thinking of when they go to see what is sort of a sequel to The Shining. So how did you walk that tightrope knowing how King felt and, and ended up obviously a happy ending that he loves the movie and it was very successful, but but uh, how did you walk that tight line tight wire and did you have that in the back of your head that oh King hated this Kubrick film?
0: Oh, it was in the, in the front of my head. It was this big (laughs) blinking, big blinking neon sign kind of the whole time. Um, you know, that that's a difficult book to approach anyway, just because it's, it's another huge story. It's, it's, um, it's dense, yeah. It's very dense, there's, there's a lot, there's a huge canvas of characters, there's, uh, it takes place all over the country over decades, You know, and uh, so there was the, the initial challenge of how to properly protect Dr. Sleep, um, but then the, my whole pitch for the thing was, was how to try to marry it to the cinematic language of the Kubrick film, um, and I think the challenge, and I, I imagine you've you've bumped into this an awful lot as well. And, and I think the reason, one of the primary reasons why your shining adaptation exists, is that if you miss the point, like like the underneath all of all of the minutia of what scenes you keep or how you combine characters to condense everything, if if you miss the heart of what King is trying to say. In yeah. the story he's going to be very unhappy, and I think that's what happens to the Kubrick film um, and and it's it's such a, a from a from the perspective of a fan not only of King but of Kubrick and someone who admires the hell out of that film it's impossible if you love the book to look at it and say, "This is a good adaptation of the book right. um, you know I think people can can reasonably debate um, whether the film itself you know is deserving of of the huge amounts of of praise that it's it's received and its iconic status i think it is yeah um but as an adaptation you know as a king fan it's impossible also not to say but it's not a great adaptation and it's and it's because it it lost that kernel of what what it was ultimately about specific to the arc of jack torrance yeah. um and to it his took ultimate me a while redemption. To, it took
1: me a while to realize that both things can be true. It can yes. be a great Kubrick film and a disappointing adaptation of Stephen King's great novel.
0: Yeah, and and that contradiction and and that that stressful place to be, you know, just as a fan is kind of what was coloring my process with the script throughout. That it was like, how do I? How do I fold all of this back together and somehow try to uh, protect that kernel of intent um, that colors the whole story, both books? Um, you know which is i think something that you protected so beautifully in your adaptation of it and i think that's oh, why i was king... lucky
1: that king wrote the script for mine so <laughs> that made things a lot easier uh, and well, yeah it was one of the greatest scripts i've ever read but but how did you protect those kernels and and how, were you trepidatious about how you approached king with how you were going to embrace iconic images from the original kubrick film
0: uh, I was terrified of him, but I I, uh, I also had kind of decided at the beginning that if if he didn't like what what I wanted to do with it, I wouldn't do the I wouldn't do the movie. That um, I, I certainly didn't want to end up on the same list with him uh, that that Kubrick did, right. and um, and so my initial pitch was I want to I want to try to as faithfully as possible. Um, adapt the Dr. Sleep narrative up until the very end. And there was, was the big change. And I, I said, I feel like we have an opportunity here because the book takes place on the grounds of what used to be the Overlook Hotel, um, which he makes very clear on the first page. Nope, that was destroyed. You know, uh, He kind of very emphatically retcons the, the, the Kubrick narrative right out the gate, just says, nope. Dick Halloran's alive. The hotel is destroyed. That's what happened. Um, and so the final confrontation between Dan and Rose and Abra is at you know the the grounds that once were the Overlook, but it's now long gone. Um, and so the pitch that I made was, how about we keep the hotel alive um, but abandoned, and let Danny use that as intentionally use it as a as a weapon in his arsenal against Rose who he can't beat otherwise. And um, the seed for that's already in the book uh, in that he uses the ghosts of the Overlook and he uses in particular the ghost of Jack as a secret weapon. You know, the the lock boxes are kind of his, the ace up his sleeve. So I said, thematically, it's the same idea. Um, It's just gonna be expanded um, to include the hotel itself. And then because we're making that change, um, what I want to do is do the thing I know he really hated about, about, uh, about The Shining and change the ending and the fate of the characters. Mm-hmm. Um, but the pitch that I, that I was able to make was, uh, I can give you the ending from The Shining that Kubrick uh, denied. Right. And that hopefully would pull it all together um, and he initially, you know, wasn't, wasn't really wanting to hear much about it. Once I said the Overlook would, would be there, he was like, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> um, but it was, the, uh, it was the scene between Danny and Jack at the bar. Um, oh, when right. I pitched that to him and he, he kind of thought about it and he said, okay, actually, yeah, you, if, if that's how you're going to approach it, then, then you, you may go forward and try it. Um, and uh, so I had, it was a very weird because I had the book I had Dr. Sleep open, and had already ripped that to pieces and and you know pulled out all the all the material from that. And then I had the novel of the Shining open, and I'd done that as well to the back third. Um, and I had both of the uh, cinematic references open. I had the Kubrick and the miniseries to pull from, um, and I'm referencing all of that together. Uh, and then I just started trying to kind of tie all the little bits um, together in a way that, I, I had two big questions that were always kind of up in front of me, which are, you know, who who is Dan and who is Jack? And if I could keep true to that for the last 20 minutes, then I, I thought there was a chance it could work. Um, but I I was petrified when I sent the script uh, to King. I bet. And yeah, I, I, and he, uh, at the time, it was right before Joe got married. Uh-huh. um and he wrote back, he's like, I'm, I'm about halfway through the script. I'm gonna have to put it down because Joe's getting married, I'm gonna go deal with that. But so far I love it. I'll be back to you when I can. And and uh, I was like, Well, everything you're gonna hate is in the back half of the <laughs> yeah, and you're yeah. on Tinder books <laughs> yeah. now. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and it's like well, this is gonna take who, who I'm gonna just live with this ulcer for weeks. Um But he uh he came back after the wedding and really, really liked it and Kind of gave his blessing, and at that point we we were able to proceed. but if he had come back and said, "I prefer you didn't then uh, we would have we would have very gracefully bowed out of the project I think
1: well, it sounds like you had so many elements. it sounds like the most complicated slate of issues to deal with in the screenwriting process because there were so many uh, media that you had to pay fealty to you know you've got two books. Two movie, a movie and a mini series, and an author who is still in his prime uh, as a writer and to tread softly on all those places. And it's also a tonal shift from The Shining too. People are expecting a scary tension building ghost story and it's more than that and, and less than that in some ways. It's not all about the buildup of tension and release as The Shining was. And it wasn't all about the internal machinations of what's going on within this recovering alcoholic who's not really recovered very well at this point.
0: yeah, it, the the books were so different, and that was something I loved because my expectations as a fan were were so upended when i when I first read the novel. And it, it made sense when I would look back at it and say, if if the shining is about uh, alcoholism and addiction, and Dr. Sleep is about recovery. Mm-hmm. You know, these are completely different stories. And they're written by a man who, you know, King at the time when he wrote The Shining, as you're well aware, was, was so in the grips of his own addiction and, and the fear of what that could do to his family. And King at the time when he wrote Dr. Sleep had decades of sobriety under his belt. His children had grown and were successful and happy in their own lives. Um, it, it's just a very different person. And I, what I love about that is that, you know, Danny Torrance is not Jack Torrance and Dr. Sleep is not the shining. Um, They're intrinsically linked and Danny wouldn't be Danny if Jack hadn't been Jack. And Dr. Sleep's story is informed of the shining and descended from the shining, but it isn't just the shining again. And um, I loved that. I do think it, it made for a tonal, uh, a bit of tonal whiplash for people, especially who are unfamiliar with, with both books and who are only familiar with uh, with the the cinematic adaptations. Right. Especially. The Kubrick
1: film, particularly, yeah. Yeah,
0: I, I, I think that I can, I'm very sympathetic to how that's like, wait, there's, there's uh, like this gang of vampires and people are flying over the earth and it's kind of like a superhero movie. Uh, it, it's very... <laughs> You know, it's not what, what, what you expect, but that, that's kind of what I loved about the book. And that goes back to one of the, the facets of adaptation that I think is really important, which is that you aren't trying to take a piece of work and turn it into something else. Um, adaptation at its heart is you have to best express what that story actually is. You're just translating it into a different medium. Um, and the rules are different. Uh, the the available real estate for character development and and plot machinations is smaller because um, you just don't have as much time, um, unless you're working in TV. When and then all the all bets are off. But uh, you know that that's something that I think is really critical is if you approach a piece of material and say, I want to take this book and I want to make it like something else. I want to. If if it had been like, how do we make Doctor Sleep as much like The Shining as possible? And we get rid of all the vampires. We get rid of Rose, you know. And we we just have Dandy goes to a different hotel, and he also goes crazy. You know, I, there are all sorts of ways for it to go wrong. Um, trying to kind of protect what what the book actually is at its heart, despite the changes you're required to make, is is some of the some of the most fun you get to have um, in adaptation. And yeah.
1: So you also have something else to deal with, though, and that is audience expectations that you have to keep in mind. And you have nods to the Kubrick film. But if you've read the book, you know what to expect. If you haven't read the book, you're going to expect the continuing adventures of the Torrance family and the Overlook Hotel and the ghosts of of all of that. So how did you deal with those expectations? Did you pay attention to it in the marketing sense after the film was completed on how to deliver it to an audience because I remember the trailer, the first teaser being very, very evocative of that.
0: Yeah, no, and that's something we, we actually, frankly, lost a bit of sight of, I think, um, mm-hmm. in retrospect. When, when I was working on the script and when we were shooting the movie, there was an awful lot of talk about how, yes, we're going to get to The Shining and yes, we're going to get to The Overlook, but it's at the end. And in the meantime, we have to make sure that we fully service this story of Abra, Rose, and Dan, which could exist without any of that, um, which in and of itself was, was a, like a five-act story that needed to be serviced. So um, that was always really upfront, was the shining connection at the end is, is an inevitable connection, but that's not the focus. And that we needed to make sure the film stood up in a way that people who, uh, the uninitiated, with, with uh, even the Kubrick Shining, could still enjoy the film. Um, it had to be
1: self-contained, yeah.
0: It did. It, it had to be able to, to stand up on its own, whether you were familiar with The Shining or not. And if you were familiar with The Shining, we thought it would enhance the experience a great deal. Um, but we wanted it to make sense and still be enjoyable otherwise. Um, our initial conversations about marketing for the film were that we needed to stay away from The Shining. Um, that we needed very much to market it as its own story. And the studio fear with that approach was that um, the enthusiasm for King in particular, and for cinematic universes at the time and everything else, they were like, we have to, we're not gonna hide the fact that it's connected to The Shining. That's a big selling point. We think people who love The Shining will want to know that this is the sequel and the title doesn't give you anything to indicate that it's related. So let's make sure that we put enough of that iconic imagery into the marketing materials um, that people will, the the right people will be kind of caught by it. I think despite our best intentions to keep that balanced, like you said, by the time we went through the iterations and they test market all these things and all the little groups come back and say, we liked this trailer way better than this trailer. By the time it went through the process, um, it really had gotten very shining centric and it was because that's the stuff that in those kind of closed, contained focus groups, that was the stuff that lit everybody up. And and
1: they sell what they know how to sell already, exactly. what they've already sold before. It's easier to sell something as a sequel than as an original that has a link to that original movie.
0: Exactly. and 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 I think you know, in retrospect, I think that hurt us. Uh, Mm -hmm. And, but we were all at the time feeling like, yep, this is the right, this is the right path. And we would watch the trailers and we know the whole movie. So when we see it, you know, we don't realize how lopsided it's become. And we're like, oh, this is great. This is really exciting. Um, And when the, uh, when the marketing material hit, immediately everybody starts forensically examining The Shining elements. You know, everyone's holding up frame-by-frame comparisons and talking about, oh, my God, who's going to play this character and are we going to see this character? And The Shining just eclipsed everything. Um, Of course. And there was kind of no way it was going to go another way, ultimately. And and I think, you know, when when the film was released, um, when you talk about, the degree to which fan expectations were affecting us kind of all throughout, there was this belief in the beginning that half of the audience was not gonna like that this movie existed. <laughs> um, that you would either have the King diehards who are saying, oh, hey, wait, you're using the Kubrick iconography. No, 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 no. Um, or you'd have the Kubrick diehards who were saying, you can't make a sequel to the film at all. And they're not gonna be moved by the fact that Stephen King already Made a sequel to The Shining. Uh, that's not gonna, you know, gonna move them. So there was the sense of like we're we're gonna alienate half potentially half of the viewers with any decision we make. Sort of like an election. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's, it's like there's no way we're gonna win. Uh, so that was freeing in one way because it was like, well, let's just let's try to make the movie that that I think is is the right movie. And if we're gonna lose half of them anyway, um, let's at least lose them in a way that we're proud of. And uh um, Yeah, God damn it. Yeah. Yeah, we'll we'll lose them, we'll lose them our way. And um and it was really interesting when the film was finished and we started testing it, uh, that it seemed, you know, King was really happy and then the Kubrick Estate was really happy. And our test screenings were indicating that the audience in general, it wasn't 50-50 at all. It was it was like, oh now it's 70-30 in our favor. Yeah. This is gonna work. Uh, but you never know. And, and, um, that, that movie was always just, it was this wonderful little prize kind of at the other end of this huge minefield. Yeah. And that was kind of what was fun about it too. Um, But you're going to
1: step into that tar pit again now, but in a different sense, Howarin is the Dick Howarin story. There is no book, that predates this so this is an original screenplay that you're going to deal with that king is not involved in creating so and yet it has arisen from two previous works that he's done that have been committed to cinema so how is your process there what, you don't have anything that you have to pay so much deep respect to except for the source material for the preceding stories
0: right and, and to the heart of of that character, who he, you know, uh, who he really fleshed out beautifully, I think, in both *The Shining* and *Doctor Sleep*. You learn much more about Dick Halloran and Doctor Sleep than you knew in *The Shining*. Um, and he also appears in *It* very briefly. Uh, you know, there, there, there are some really interesting things to play with there. Um, that's one where, if, if it gets to move forward, and I have no idea if it will at this point, um, you know kind of uh, our plans prior to the release of Dr. Sleep and of course, prior to COVID, uh, everything's kind of changed. We don't know, we don't really know what's gonna happen with anything anymore. So, uh, but if that were to proceed, that's something where I've never gotten to do that either, trying to take take someone else's character and try to tell a whole new story because there's no information about Halloran. There's this huge chunk of his life where King just never provided anything and that's where we wanna play. Yeah. Um, The fun part about that is I've got signposts on either side of that story that I know I have to land. I know where he begins and I know where he ends. And it's all about getting him from that little boy at the beginning of Dr. Sleep, who's talking about his evil grandfather and learning about The Shining and and the lockboxes, and getting him to be that man who takes the job at the Overlook Hotel. And who clearly, as referenced all over, you know, the books, um, clearly had some kind of very traumatic experience in Room Two Thirty Seven and Two Seventeen in the book. Yeah, uh, Two Seventeen. Uh, yeah, we'll go with that. Two Seventeen. We're gonna go with Two Seventeen. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, that's that that would be an incredible incredible job. I I don't know how to approach that. I do know that I would need to touch base with King constantly um, to make sure that that we're not. Messing up his character, Um, but it's
1: also very freeing to not have a blueprint a a blueprint already in front of you Um, Yes And to be able to have king as a resource is fantastic to keep you on track Uh, Is there an outline yet? Is there a script of any kind yet?
0: Yeah, there's there's a there's a thorough outline and i've got pieces of a script um, I don't know. I I don't know if it'll go any further to be honest Um, Mm -hmm. and the industry right now is in this really kind of amazing place of trying to figure out what is theatrical anymore. Uh, What kind of projects are they going to put the resources into? What does it mean to release a film theatrically? We're barely beginning to answer that question. Um, I think there's a lot of uncertainty and the The enthusiasm with which people would green light a project in the past, that was already a very fraught process, um, full of hesitations and no's, you know, now it's, it's, it's just a different world. So I I don't know what, if anything will ever come of that, of that project. Uh, I hope someday it it really gets uh, back on track because I really, I really liked it, but um, I don't know what will happen.
1: Well, moving from theatrical features, then, let's let's get into television and The Haunting of Hill House, which is also an adaptation of something that had been filmed very successfully before. Uh, the Haunting is one of the great ghost stories on film of all time. But it's different in that you had a whole series. So you had an adaptation from a book, but then you had to create an entire universe that would carry throughout uh, several episodes of a show. And then that turns into a semi-sequel of of The Haunting of Bly Manor, which comes from Henry James and The Turn of the Screw, another adaptation from a literary masterpiece that had been turned into a couple of really good movies. Um, But tell me how you go from the source material into creating an entire 10 episodes um, of television that feel united.
0: Now that's a very different process uh, than it's been with, with the King stuff. Um, and it's because of what you said, it's because these have already been adapted really well. And The Haunting of Hill House and The Turn of the Screw are stories that lend themselves beautifully to a feature film adaptation. There's just about enough there to yeah. make a phenomenal movie. And even then you have to cut a couple little things, but it fits, it fits really well. Um, and both of them have been made to near perfection. You know, I think uh, Robert Wise's adaptation of uh, The Haunting in 63, and Jack Clayton's The Innocents in 61. Brilliant. Spectacular. Yeah. Uh, so there's a very different, and then you've got, uh, you've got kind of failed adaptations as well. You've got adaptations of varying quality of, of both sources on stage, on screen, uh, you know, that go back decades. So instead of this kind of completely uh, unknown terrain, which both Gerald's Game and and Dr. Sleep were, this is really well-worn ground. Um, And people have demonstrated how to do it well. People have, you know, clearly shown the pitfalls. In the case of The Haunting, there was the Yon de Bont film um, that really kind of showed like how, how it can go wrong if, you're, if, if you go down the wrong path. Yeah. And and so the priority is completely different because it's not about doing a straight adaptation anymore. That's already been done. And because it's a full season of television, even if we did a perfect to the letter adaptation of the book, we'd, we'd cover two episodes. Right. And then we'd have eight episodes of filler. So it's a completely different approach. And for that, the initial process looks very much the same. I, I go through the book, and I carve it up. Um, and it's about characters and moments, and themes. And then you kind of put all the pieces up, and it's like, all right. So these pieces, when properly assembled, will equal a movie. I need to make a ten-hour a version of this. Um, let's remix everything. Let's uh, let's take all these pieces and try to build something new out of them. Um, and then that way. I can hopefully honor the source material, but do it in a way that's constantly surprising. And what I learned with Hill House was that it takes on a life of its own rather quickly. Um, That series, you know, the, the, the priority throughout was to try to protect the intention and the themes and the basic characterizations that Shirley Jackson had created. And by the time we got to the end of it, these new characters had kind of grown into their own. The, this new storyline had created its own kind of gravity and tides. And um, ultimately what it, what it revealed was that we landed at a different place than the book landed. Um, which I know was upsetting to some of the some of the fans of the book, who especially oh, on the last line, Jack's
1: The purist, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, the bridge, there are
0: there, there are many, uh, yeah. yeah, and they, they <laughs> would come at they and I and they would say, oh, you changed the last line, uh, you know, the uh, those who walked there were walked alone, is now walked together, and it's like, yes, yes, we did, uh, and it's because this story, um, that's where the characters drove it. And it is different. Um, so the
1: book is genu- is a launching pad for a series as opposed to a blueprint, you know?
0: Correct. Yes. In,
1: in adapting, if it were just a single feature film, that would be more of your responsibility is why make a version of a book into a movie if you're going to throw everything out and change it. But if you're creating something that is going to live and become a living and breathing creature on its own as a 10 episode series, you have to break away and you have to let it grow and you have to grow it. But in the case of this series, Haunting of Hill House, it's also remarkably cinematic um, in ways that are so external, was it episode six that was all uh, one shot that just, mostly one shot it's phenomenal and it's integral to the storytelling it's not just masturbating with cinema technique um and tell me a little bit about that how how you made that convey uh storytelling in a, a hugely visual and cinematic sense and the choices made for that
0: it's uh for this series in particular it's, it's, it's very challenging because in the source material, you can put the book down and make a great argument that there was never anything supernatural happening. Um, which we knew from the beginning, we didn't, we didn't have that option. You know, um, that wasn't the show that, uh, that Netflix was going to order. They wanted a ghost story. Um, and, and so that immediately pushes you out of the imagination and, and that inherent ambiguity into something more cinematic and into something, that's going to be more visual. You know, we, we kind of knew we're not making it through the pilot without coming down on one side or the other of, you know, is there a supernatural presence at work in this show? And we had to say yes. Uh, but then, okay, so there are ghosts on the show. How do we handle them? Um, how can we try to protect that beautiful idea that Shirley Jackson articulated so well about how ghosts, even whether they're real or not in the book, are these projections of the damaged psyches of the characters on the page, you know, that is something we can protect. So it becomes about, all right, how do we cling to that idea while servicing this visual medium? Um, And the choices are, they kind of pop up one at a time. And by the, the end of, of the writer's room, you've made a few thousand of them. And all the pieces have kind of fallen into place at that point. And then you just have to, you just have to commit. It's too late to back up. And um, for me, I, this is my first time getting to work in television. Um, I was, wh- whether it was a good idea or a bad idea, I'll never know, but I was i was determined to direct all of it. So that sink or swim, you know, um, if it, if it fell on its face, there'd be nobody to blame, but myself. and. Uh, that made me kind of wanna throw everything I could at it. And that that's where episode six really came from was the early conversations about what it would be like to do an episode that was about um, having Nellie's body brought into the funeral and how first we realized that it would feel like real time just because the wake and having all the siblings finally reunited, it felt like you never wanted to leave those scenes. It felt like you wanted to just sit there and confront that discomfort and the grief and the silence of it. Uh, And then that very quickly gave rise to the idea that, like you said, when you you wanna go with a long, uh, unbroken shot, it can be showy, it can be pointless. And this was one of those really rare opportunities where all the stars aligned, where it worked for the characters, it worked for the story, it worked for the atmosphere of the episode. It was justified. And so then it was like, all right, how often in my career am I going to have justification to approach material like this? Um, it's worth, it's worth the challenge of it. And that episode almost killed all of us. I bet. I, I'll never do it again, but, uh, <laughs> I, but I, you've I've done it. Lesson. You've yeah, done it.
1: I you made one of the great hours of television ever. I mean, it's pretty spectacular stuff, but also it's part of a consistent vision. The fact that you directed the whole series gave it a consistency that, was a filmmaker's vision rather than a producer's vision when you go into episodic television uh, it has been my experience i've been lucky enough to be encouraged to bring my own sense of vision and style into the shows i've been a part of but there are the priority of television series they have a style and format they want you to fit so you didn't have to deal with that because this was your show and you directed the whole thing and so you could take these stylistic adventures and be a part of what the whole series was about
0: yeah that's a that's a luxury i think um i was very lucky in that uh and it could, have, it could have gone really, really wrong. And we didn't know until the show came out whether it had. I mean, there, there was a sense kind of when the show was done and before it launched, it was like, I don't know if anyone's going to watch the show. Uh, and
1: then it premiered and everything And then it worked. Yeah. It worked. Uh, What's the difference in the writing process? This was your first time in a writer's room where yeah. there were more than just you or you and a collaborator. There's a whole organization around a big conference table.
0: It was strange. It was uh, it was uncomfortable at first. Um, I wasn't used to it, and it took me a while to kind of figure out uh, how to how to kind of be as open as possible to these other voices that are now at the table. Um, And what I learned when you've been the boss, you know? Yeah. Well, it's it's really hard to do coming out of the indie world, in particular, where where there's this sense that um, every project is about survival that you have to keep as much control over it as possible because if it goes south, you don't get another chance, potentially. And, and so I had a real kind of desperate uh, desperate sense of, of having to kind of hold on to everything with both hands. But I learned very quickly in the room that what was happening was these fantastic ideas were coming out of it. And in the same way that I was looking at, at Shirley Jackson's novel and kind of, it was inspiring new things to pop up in my imagination. I had a table full of other people who were looking at the same thing and they were having these incredible moments of inspiration. And when we put all of that together, then I started to feel like we had something special and especially uh, something where we had this large ensemble cast, all of whom had very different and distinct personalities and perspectives. Different writers started to take ownership of different characters. And um, it was really beautiful to watch. You'd see people who said, I really connect with Luke. I have a lot to say about that. Um, And their voice became essential um, to the show. And then we all started to kind of pour our own experiences with death and with family and with loss. Um, And we would just tell each other stories about ourselves. And before you knew it, this whole table of people had kind of opened up, taken a very personal ownership of the material we were creating. And it became a chorus instead of a solo. And that's what I love about writer's rooms. Um, it, it takes you places you, you would be incapable of going by yourself because your vision is so limited by being singular um, that you you can't see things from other perspectives very easily, especially when you're you have to keep your head down and you're just entrenched in this 10 hour story with all these moving parts um, perspective becomes critical and you get so lost in that. Um, So it's, it's something that uh, it's something that, that worked out beautifully in in this case and that we carried over into Bly Manor and into Midnight Mass and, and into all the, all the other television that, that uh, that I'm lucky enough to be working on. Um, It, it became something too, where we could check each other because uh, the mission statements we'd write up at the very beginning, which is, you know, we want to celebrate The Haunting of Hill House. We want to celebrate Shirley Jackson. The changes we make, we want to make with love um, for the the original material. We could put all that up and there were sounding boards. There were safety valves. Uh, If we ever got to the point where one or any of us were running too far off of those mission statements, there were other people to help keep us all in check.
1: And it's great to have a a team that's all on the same side. You know, it's, it's, it also helps in battles with networks. Although Netflix doesn't seem to be that uh, battle oriented compared to some of the broadcast networks.
0: Certainly not compared to, to, uh, I've heard horror stories for sure. Netflix has has been very, uh, very supportive creatively. Um, That doesn't mean they aren't nervous about things or the, Sometimes, like you said, it takes the weight of a room with conviction about an idea to be able to talk them into something they don't understand right away or don't uh, necessarily want to to risk. And episode six was a huge lightning rod for that. It was part of the original pitch. And as we got closer through it, um, the room was determined that we could make it work. And then the cost of that episode is very different from the cost of the other episodes. And you have to start rehearsing it six months in advance. You have to build the set to accommodate it. It's all this stuff. And sooner or later, it's inevitable that when you hold up the the price tag of that episode and the reality of putting the production on hiatus to rehearse it, that someone up the chain is gonna say, do we have to do this? Um, It would be way, way better to just play it safe and just treat it like a normal episode and in that case, we had not only, you know, the writers, the actors at that point who had committed to the idea, but also Netflix themselves were the ones who stood up and said, we bought the show with this episode and promised we, we demand that you guys deliver what was given to us. And that quashed, you know, any question marks coming from, from various places about it. So, um,
1: what a treat, yeah. For you and for the audience, you know, it, it, it's it's very special. Now, you've done adaptations in many different voices. Stephen King is nowhere, nothing like Shirley Jackson is nothing like Henry James. So tell me about how di- your process into getting into these different creative minds and where they came from and translating them to the screen. How, is there a difference in how you approach
0: these things? There very much is um, part of it. Initially, it's about just kind of immersing yourself in the language that of the author that you're you're trying to adapt. So with King, that's pretty easy just because I, I do that in my daily life. I'm always reading King um, with Shirley Jackson, it was tougher. And uh, with Henry James, it's particularly difficult because um, his language is not something that's as easy to relate to for a contemporary uh, reader. viewer and certainly not easy to adapt but the weird thing about the three of them is that there are connections and I can see um, having really gotten you know to open the hood on, on all of this I can see how Stephen King is influenced by Shirley Jackson and I can see how Shirley Jackson is influenced by Henry James and they're clearly very aware of each other's work and and Uh, I think Shirley Jackson's work influenced King at a very young age and has really burrowed in. And similarly, I think it's clear that Henry James's work found its way into Shirley Jackson's imagination. So you start to feel the echoes and the way they're building off each other and riffing off each other. And that's really delightful. I think um, in protecting voice, that's a lot harder because uh, you're always trying to write for the most inclusive audience you can imagine. I want the most people you know, possible to be able to relate to and enjoy the show that we're making um, without sacrificing what makes it unique. And so a lot of that is about extracting, kind of going through and when you have really dense language, like with Henry James, and you're really having to kind of chip through it to get at what's underneath, what people can grab onto today, you know, that's that's hard. And that, that can take a whole room of people to try to find. And what's kind of unique about Bly Manor is we didn't just do Turn of the Screw. We read all of Henry James's ghost stories and we just started pulling from all of them um, and stuffing them all together into one big adaptation. And kind of each, when the show launches, you'll see like each, each episode is actually the title of one of his stories. Mm. Um, and they're all just kind of braided together and, and made to work in one, hopefully cohesive uh, story. But um, the excitement about that for us was where I could actually take, you know, specific passages from The Haunting of Hill House and put it into characters' mouths. You know, Olivia and Nell directly quote uh, Shirley Jackson right off the page numerous times. That was harder in the Henry James world. and in a show that we decided took place in the 1980s, it was it was really tough, and uh, we found a way though. And I think I think part of it is, you know, there's a story Henry James wrote called "The Romance of Certain Old Clothes," which is a phenomenal short ghost story. And if you strip away all of all of the the proper kind of language and, and all of the context of the time. Underneath it is the prototype. I, I think you, you see the DNA of the Ring, of the Grudge. Uh, you, you see, kind of underneath it all, some of the seeds that have now grown into these powerful, you know, huge, just trees of of horror, iconic imagery. They're all there, um, and he's one of the first to be to be playing with them. So. I think finding the commonality under the language and kind of finding the connections to a contemporary audience and to other contemporary authors, um, that helps cut through it. But um, trying to protect the tone is, uh, is something that's always on our mind. Um, it's just not always easy.
1: And this sure. time you chose not to direct all of the episodes yourselves. Did you find yes. yourself being crushed by the process when it was uh, Hill house?
0: Yeah, uh, Hill House. I I had a, re- a really hard time doing Hill House. I lost forty five pounds in production. Yeah, um, oh, wow. I looked really. By the end of it, I was I was hanging by a thread, Oof. and uh, I came out of it feeling like I I couldn't put myself through that again, and I couldn't do that to my family again. Yeah. I mean, uh, even with Kate being on the show, I mean, our marriage was essentially put on pause for a year, um, and that that was that was really difficult. Um,
1: I had that with the stand. I was away from home for a year. Cynthia played a couple uh, part in it, but
0: it wasn't uh,
1: all through. So, it it's a
0: pressurizer. It takes a toll, and and so uh, with Bly, I was also excited because we were pulling all these other stories into it. Um, I felt like I had really emptied my my uh, missile silos on Hill House, mm-hmm. and. Um, I really, in the same way that the writers rooms had provided ideas to the process, I never, I never could have come to, uh, I thought it would be wonderful to bring in some additional voices, um, and some, uh, some additional visions, um, to help tell the story. And the challenge there became how do, when you talk about consistency of tone and intent, how do we make this season that now has multiple authors, um, feel like one story and that that was a fun new challenge that was just as as daunting at times as directing all of it myself just trying to keep keep the various trains of the of of you know, the cars of the train on the tracks and, uh, and without that was discouraging,
1: without discouraging the creative input of the different filmmakers and correct
0: their stylistic flourishes and not making them feel like i'm just kind of sitting over their shoulder going like oh that's 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 what you're gonna do. You know, no, that a uh,
1: 35 millimeter yeah. lens for this. Yeah, uh.
0: yeah. That was that was hard to learn. I think uh, learning for me to learn how to really step back and, and to stay offset uh, when it was important to stay offset. You know, to to be nearby uh, yeah. if needed, but to just say I'm the executive producer and that's enough. And I need to I need to create an environment for the directors to do their best work. Um, that was the that was the challenge of, of Bly. Yeah, that's and, why you hired them. Yeah, yeah, and, and they they were all filmmakers who came from the feature world, um, who had done uh, films that I loved, that were character forward and emotionally resonant, and I I, I was already confident that we were on a close enough wavelength um, that they could they could execute this material. And the season, now that it's done, it it worked. Um, I think. Uh, we'll, I guess we'll see, but, uh, we'll see soon. but it's, but, it's weird. Cause then the next one I'm doing, mid, I'm in Vancouver now doing midnight mass, which is an original. And that one I'm directing all of again. So I've, wow. I've learned nothing. Um, <laughs> yeah.
1: But. You forget after a while, you've got a series in between where you didn't do it. You'll find out again.
0: Yeah. I'll just go back and forth for the rest of my life until, until it kills me. Um, Well,
1: before we get into uh, some of the audience questions that we're getting, um, what are some of your favorite film adaptations that have come from books?
0: Oh, wow. Um, Well, I mean, immediately, the ones I'm the most familiar with uh, are the ones we've already talked about, The the Innocents, The Haunting. Um, I've now dissected those movies so profoundly uh, that I, I feel like I know them back and forth, The Shining, um I love uh, uh the Shawshank Redemption uh, oh. is just one that the riches of that adaptation kind of reveal themselves every time I see it um there and there are so many king adaptations. one of the most formative ones for me growing up was the stand uh, you may have heard of um, I, I've
1: seen it yeah
0: yeah, I, I bet you have uh and <laughs> and that that was a profoundly influential uh thing for me as as a young. As a young, constant reader coming up and seeing what could be done to take a story that large and, and impossible to wrap your head around and, and translating it to, in that case, the small screen, uh, at, at least in my house, it was small. Well, uh, especially then,
1: but, they were all small in the four by three uh, ratio.
0: But yeah. now I've seen the Blu-ray and I've seen it projected and it makes me, it makes me very happy to see it nice and big. It's a beautiful yeah.
1: job of restoring that. It, it looks better than it ever has. Well, let's uh, take a look at some of the questions. I have not seen any of them yet. Uh, they're on a screen. Yes. Um, the first one is from Dave Thorpe, who says, you've talked before about how a moment in Frag not. <laughs> scared you as a kid and even influenced absentia now as a father, is there anything your kids have been scared of that has influenced your horror filmmaking?
0: That's a great question. Um, yes. Uh, it's, it's amazing. You know, I I have three kids. Um, my oldest is almost 10 and he, uh, the things that scared him starting when he was very young are very surprising to me. Um, he'll sometimes describe nightmares to me that he has, uh, there was one he talked about where a man was floating, and he would just say, "It's it's the floating man." And so that found its way into the haunting of Hill House. Um, you know, it. I, I feel horribly opportunistic saying this, but um, anything I can kind of mine from the imaginations of my kids, mm-hmm. if I have that chance, I will, because kids um, kids understand fear in a way that we lose as adults. We we tend to narrow our imagination as we get older. Um, we tend to be afraid of things that are very practical, uh, not just these inexplicable, uh, kind of um, at times just uh, cosmically absurd ideas that kids can have that just terrify them. And I think that's what upset me so much when I was little watching Fraggle Rock. Um, you know that that terrible tunnel stayed with me for my whole life. It burrowed in. I see that happen to my kids, and that makes me sad because I don't want them to be scared of anything. Um, I want my kids to feel safe. And uh, so I have that instinct always driving what I do. But when they tell me why they're afraid or what scares them or what images kind of stick with them in their subconscious at night, I'm always amazed by them um, because they're nothing that I could come up with. There's something raw and pure and primal about them. Um, and so any chance I have to, uh, to selfishly mine that for, for my stuff, I, I, will, I will take advantage of.
1: Do you think fatherhood uh, changed you as a
0: filmmaker? Profoundly, I think. Um, I I look at my early stuff. I look at Absentia and Oculus in particular. And those are bleak stories. Um, The evil in the world at the end of of both of those stories uh, exists unchallenged. And um, ever since I've had children, I have a much harder time going there. uh, Because I don't want that to be true of the world that they're in. Mm -hmm. even if it may be at times. Um, I have this idea in my head that maybe the films that I make might be one of the last ways they're going to get to know me when they're older and Mm -hmm. when I'm gone. And I don't want the message I'm telling them then when I'm not here anymore and, and I can't contextualize any of the work that I've left behind. I don't want that message to be one of cynicism. Um, yeah. I want to make sure that, that they're left with one message from me, which is about forgiveness and healing and having faith in each other. Um, even if things are scary and I think the world is terrifying. So I think they'll, they'll tune into that right away, but it's, it's made me want very, very much uh, never to leave um, never to leave the story on a note of hopelessness, and uh, so that I look back at all everything all the scripts I wrote that never were made all all the things I did in the twenty years trying to break into the business before I was a father and um the The endings of all of them have changed a lot uh, wow. since i 've had kids, yeah.
1: Well, that leads into the next question from Rachel Jones, who asks, what personal experiences have you adapted into horror? What is tapping What is tapping into that like, and what authenticity does it bring to the work?
0: Mm. There's a lot of that. Um, and it's that thing where uh, I'm reluctant to get too personal about them just because I feel like, I, I hope the movie's are personal enough that they kind of contain everything I've wanted to say, but certainly, um, death in my own family, uh, and in my extended family, the circumstances of that death, and in some cases the imagery of that death, um, of people that I've loved have have found their way into these things. Um, I've found as I get older that I have a lot to say about addiction and recovery. Um, I have a lot to say about trauma, uh, and I have a lot to say about the importance of kindness, um, which is something I struggle to keep in the foreground of my own life. Um, so yeah, I've had, um, from loved ones and members of my family and, and friends who, who have died, I, I've had dreams about them. I've had experiences with, with their funerals and processing their deaths and seeing the impact it's had on my family um, and on my parents and, and things like that, that, uh, has in some cases gone completely unedited into, into the films, um, and into Hill House in particular. Um, yeah. you know, I, I, uh, I don't want to get too, too deep into it, but, um, but yeah, there's my, in my family, we've had, we've, we've run the gamut of, 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 of ways to die, disease and suicides and, and, and all sorts of things that, um, that have really made me rethink the nature of life and family and love and attachment as i 've gotten older and and inevitably that that pours itself into whatever i 'm working on um, yeah,
1: i 've certainly found that to be the case i mean I, I I made writing the bullet all about that it It barely sticks to king 's story and becomes something entirely different because of the experience that i 'd had through loss of family members and loved ones and and how it affects you and, and it deepens you as, as a writer, as a filmmaker, and as as a human being, as, as you've so eloquently expressed here.
0: Um, Karen you Wong- can, You can feel that too, Mick, when you watch that movie. I, oh. I think you can feel, you feel a difference to someone who's got uh, something personal invested in the film. Um, yeah. you, you It comes through. And uh, so yeah, I, I think you're probably, you're probably very also aware of when you're working on a project that is coming from a place where you where you're projecting enough of your own life in front of you so that you can see it. Yeah, a different way that you can really kind of understand it about yourself that you approach you approach everything different. The, how you direct the actors, how you frame the shots, everything's different.
1: Yeah, it's like standing naked emotionally and yeah.
0: allowing
1: the world to experience your pain. Yeah. And that's something that I think is an important element that that comes into play, uh, especially if you're working within a genre that's mostly known for its blood and guts. You yeah. know, if you bring the humanity and the reality of life and death and mortality into play, it's going to be a very potent experience for an audience. It may not be big box office, but it's <laughs> going to be an interesting experience. Uh, one last question before we wrap it up for now, and this is so great. Like you said... Whenever we get together, it could be hours of this yes. going on and on. just tackle a different subject each time, um, but Karen juan asks what 's your dream story to put on screen if
0: you haven 't already oh, um, yikes
1: mine was gerald 's game
0: <laughs> I, I will never not feel bad about that, that no, a- no no no,
1: no don 't i 'm glad you did it because you did it great.
0: Um, that was when, when, uh, when we first met, um, it was, uh, the first time I ever met Mick was, uh, to, to show him Gerald's game in a private screening, um, before the film was released. And, uh, that was, that was very much on my mind the entire time.
1: And an honor. Um,
0: an honor uh, oh, the, the honor was mine. Um, but, uh, but yes, a dream project. I mean, geez, uh, I've, I've got the, the answer that most Stephen King fans are going to have, uh, to that. You know, the dark tower is, is forever, uh, forever going to be the story I wish I could tell. Um, That's your holy grail. That would be the holy grail. It's, it's, I mean, talk about an adaptation challenge. Yeah. Uh, but it's also so many people have so many very talented people as well have, have poured so much time and, and, uh, and heart and soul and blood, sweat, and tears, trying to crack that. Yeah. Um, I adapted you
1: know, the talisman into a two part gosh. four hour and it's one of my favorite scripts. It never got made. It was going to be, it was for Amblin. And you know, it was just too many expensive elements like King and Steven Spielberg and Frank Marshall and Kathy Kennedy.
0: Yeah. That's a beautiful book. I, I, I would love to read that. Um, I'd love wow. to read what you did with that. I, uh, (laughs) yes. Oh yes. Deal. Totally. Um, but yeah, I, I think, um, that for me would be, would be the one I, I don't imagine that's, that's, uh, I don't know how that would happen or if it could happen that, that property is, is, uh, you know, it's daunting just to, to think about even taking first steps toward it. But, um, but in the meantime, I've been very lucky in that, uh, I've gotten to play kind of in the sandboxes that, that really informed my childhood as it is. I've, I've gotten to adapt some of my favorite Stephen King books. Um, You know, I, I uh, I'm working on another one. Uh, Again, I don't know where it'll go, but I adore revival and that's, that's a whole other chapter and and the closest to like a viciously cynical ending that I think I'm capable of. I have to kind of, I, I can, I can justify that one just because that's what he did. So, you know, I have to protect it. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, growing up my favorite authors were, um, Stephen King and Christopher Pike. I'm doing a Christopher Pike show too wow. for Netflix. Yeah. It's, it's, it's such a, a delight. I had, I had adapted, uh, unauthorized in college. I wrote a, an adaptation of Christopher Pike's The Midnight Club. Mm. And sent it to his agents, and they sent me a cease and desist letter. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, at least I got in the door, and now you know the midnight club is is the title <laughs> of the show and and I kind of like what we did with henry james i I have been lucky enough that he's given us just an arsenal of his books, so um that was a dream of mine for a long time, and that's all come true so i i um I have no complaints when it comes to the dream project thing kind of each more than once in my life stepping onto set I've said this is my dream project uh that's already happened so
1: how um, many people can say that I mean I can say I I did the stand and the shining and I had a bag of bones and you know it's like what is there to aspire to after that
0: (laughs) yeah you kind of hit I I remember there was this point at the end of 2019 where I was in the Colorado lounge and we I'd taken a lap around the overlook on we had a a adult size big wheel um and i said to someone uh my my uh my producing partner trevor macy who's been with me at at every turn of this this journey going back to oculus you know i I said you know we we started um last year this would have been yeah i was like we we started the year in in hill house and ended at the overlook hotel i mean how (laughs) uh just as a horror literature fan i i don't know that I ever am allowed to complain about anything ever again. So
1: It's yeah. true. You, you can't. You always yeah. have to have a smile on your face for the rest of your life.
0: Yes, yes, indeed.
1: <laughs> Mike Flanagan, thank you so much for joining us here and for being live at the Fantasia Film Festival and for all the people who are with us live. Um, it's just great. Thank you so much and can't wait to get together soon once the world heals a little bit more.
0: Yes, it is always such a pleasure to see you, my friend. and such a pleasure to be part of Fantasia, which we were talking right before this started. Uh, you know Fantasia premiered absentia. Um, and i I was able to attend Fantasia for the first time uh, just before my career became a thing. And I've always been so grateful uh, to have been part of this amazing festival over the years and for the for the for the incredible kind of career starting. Uh, boost that it gave me. So to be here and talking to you, uh, and uh, seeing Mitch, and this has just been a real, a real delight. So yeah, thank you I so much. Able,
1: I was able to world premiere Riding the Bullet" and "Nightmare Cinema" at Fantasia, and such a such a great place to be, and so much fun to be here together with friends. Thanks yes. again, everybody. <laughs>
0: thank you. Thanks for listening to Post with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes.